Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word, and we're going to go first to Luke 17, and then we'll be in Ephesians 4 in just a few minutes. For using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seats there, it's page 876. I wanted to take some time and, and review what we talked about last week, and, um, and then spend a few minutes on the idea of forbearance. And so, um, if, if the review time lasts longer than you think it is, it should be, uh, that's planned, so don't panic, and I have adjusted on the other end uh, for that. Uh, so let me take a few minutes and review, but let me read uh, Luke 17, it says this, and he said, Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And so last week we talked about that if we're going to be a, a church that's characterized by peace, part of that means that we're, we have to be a church that forgives one another. And so that brings up the question, how do we forgive and, and what is forgiveness? And, and I, I mentioned last week that in 1984, uh, Lewis Smead uh, 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 published a book uh, called Forgive and Forget, and uh, that really popularized the idea of what some people call automatic forgiveness, that we, we just are to forgive automatically regardless of a person uh, repenting or not. Uh, more recently, in 2002, R.T. Kendall uh, published a book called uh, Total Forgiveness, I believe it is, uh, who agreed with that premise as well. But we are told in the scriptures that we are to follow the example of God in terms of forgiveness. That's what we looked at last week. So we are told to follow the examples of God in terms of forgiveness. In two verses, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven you, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. And then Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, it says that we are to bear with one another, forgiving one another as God has forgiven you. And so we are to follow the example of God when it comes to forgiveness. And so how has God forgiven us? And last week we were talking about that we are forgiven uh, when we repent. Now, I understand that I would also believe that repentance is a gift from God, but nonetheless, and then in this text here, Luke 17, it's very clear that repentance precedes forgiveness. But it, it's not just in this text. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So repentance is linked with, uh, with uh, forgiveness there. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 5.31, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
Acts 20, verse 31, Paul is telling the Ephesian elders about his ministry, and he says, I was testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then, of course, 1 John 1, 9, a very familiar text of Scripture, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And these are just a sampling of the many passages where we see repentance being uh, inextricably linked to forgiveness. And so, forgiveness and repentance are inseparably linked in the New Testament. But one thing I wanted to talk about uh, last week, and I didn't have time, and so in the review time, I'm going to introduce this a little bit just to prove the point, because there is, there, there's a benefit to understanding biblical forgiveness. And there's actually dangers if we do not. And I know some people have, have a, and it's, it's a hard thing to think through, and it's been something I've been wrestling through for several years, actually. I remember the first time I was taking a, uh, I heard this notion, I was, I was taking a, a counseling class um, several years ago, and the instructor introduced this notion that repentance should precede forgiveness. And I thought he was nuts. I, I said, no, that's not, that, that can't be true. We are to be gracious in our forgiveness, and we are to offer that freely. And we are to do that. But when the professor, the instructor of the class, was, started to walk through the biblical narrative and teaching of the subject, I began to realize, wait a minute here. He's got a point. And then uh, a friend of mine published a book uh, called Unpacking Forgiveness, it's by Chris Bronze, and uh, I would encourage you to read that book. And what I'm going to share with you now, I, I've adapted from, from that book just, just to show you um, that forgiveness without repentance can actually be harmful. That forgiveness without repentance can actually be harmful. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to show why that this is important, particularly in the context of a church. Number one, it can distort people's understanding of true repentance. If we say that we must forgive everyone unconditionally, then we cheapen what happens when forgiveness truly does take place. You know, you think of it this way. If, if, if someone uh, stole money from me or from you, it doesn't matter, um, and that person was caught... Now, as Christians, we, are to be will- we should be willing to forgive that person. We should have the gracious act of forgiveness ready to go. Now, if, if, if it's just automatic forgiveness, then we just forgive and, and then we move on. But if there's a conditional forgiveness, then, then there's the idea of reconciliation involved in that. So, for instance, this person steals some money from me, and let's say uh, he, instead of repenting of his sin... Let's say he, he continues to, to brag about his sin. Let's say that he tells the people that he's with that, that he took, you know, uh, th- that, that sucker Jeremy, you know, and, and he brags about how he spent the money and things like that. Now, if I'm just supposed to forgive automatically regardless of, of, of his repentance or not, it can really cheapen the idea of what true forgiveness really is, is when a relationship, it's a commitment. Remember, we defined it last week as a commitment. It's a commitment of a relationship being brought back together. Remember that in, in Luke 15, the party for the lost son was grand because he repented and came back. 
And that's why the party was, was, it was such a big deal, was because he had displayed repentance. We see that in the text several times of where he said, oh, I, I've sinned against heaven and against my father and against heaven. And then he rehearses his speech and he goes back there and he starts to, to give his speech and his father having the forgiveness ready to go. Because again, we're not talking about withholding forgiveness in the spirit of bitterness. No, the forgiveness was ready to go. And so the father ran and met him and, and then threw a great feast. Why? Because this was a big deal. Repentance had taken place and the relationship was restored. So if we we don't insist on biblical forgiveness, it can distort people's understanding of true repentance. Number two, it attempts to redefine how people understand God's forgiveness. If forgiveness is one-sided and it does not require two people, like Smead would argue, then it leads us to redefine how God forgives people. Rod Bell wrote in his book, Velvet Elvis, hell is full of forgiven people God loves whom Jesus died for. That's just wrong. You know, God forgives. When God forgives, that relationship is established and and healed, and there's reconciliation And so if we redefine forgiveness, then it's going to redefine how God forgives us. Smeads in his book also implies that God forgives everyone of everything. And I don't understand how we can reconcile total forgiveness or unconditional forgiveness and yet punishment that they have to pay for eternity. I understand how those two things go together. Because if I'm forgiven, then Romans chapter 8, therefore thou, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So it redefines how people understand God's forgiveness. Number three, it suggests that some people may even need to forgive God. Let me give you a quote from Smeeds. He says this, Would it bother God too much if we found our peace by forgiving him for the wrongs we suffer? What if we found a way of forgiving him without blaming him? A special sort of forgiving for a special sort of relationship. Would he, be, would he mind? And then later on, a couple pages later in his book, he says, I think we may need to forgive God after all. Now and then, but not often. Not for his sake, but ours. I don't throw this term around lightly, but my friends, it's blasphemy to say that we need to forgive God. We do not need to forgive God. If we say we have to forgive God for anything, we are saying that he was in error and he was in sin. And so if we start redefining what forgiveness looks like and how we go about it, 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 it leads us down this idea of maybe we even need to forgive God. Number four, it results in cheap grace and a reluctance to identify and name evil. Many people think that they are Christians even if they have not repented and believed. If we are automatically to forgive others, then God automatically forgives everybody then. If that is the motto, if God just automatically forgives everyone, then is there a need to repent of our sins? Is there a need to publicly identify with Christ? Is there a need to to identify evil and say we will not be part of that because it's against God? There's no need to identify that if it's just automatically forgiven. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, interestingly enough, um, if you 
want to read some history. Uh, this was the issue he thought was the downfall of the Lutheran Church in Germany um, with the rise of Adolf Hitler. It was popular during that time to, amongst evangelical Christians, particularly in the Lutheran persuasion, to say, um, we need to forgive Hitler um, as he was rising to power, and uh, we just need to uh, make sure that, that uh, they didn't require any type of confessional repentance or anything. Well, what that led to is what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. He said, you know, this basically just paved the way for him to commit these atrocities because no one was willing to say this is evil, this is wrong. And so they were willing just to say, well, we should forget about this. Number five, it discourages healing in a Christian community. If we don't look at biblical forgiveness... It could discourage healing. Uh, Chris Braunt in his book says, when forgiveness is viewed primarily as something that happens privately and individually, the importance of reconciliation is undermined. Because remember, the Smead view uh, of forgiveness is that it's all about, it's one-sided, it's my heart, it's, it's, it's about me, it's really an antidote to bitterness. And so it just makes sure that I don't get bitter in my life and, it's, and forgiveness is only about me. It's not involving two people. Whereas whenever we look in the scriptures, forgiveness has the idea of two peoples and at least two people being involved in this. And this would discourage this healing because if I'm just to forgive someone without confronting or without having a discussion or without talking about this in some ways, then reconciliation is harder to take place. So we just need to be careful with that. Number six, it may make individuals feel licensed to avoid dealing with their own sin. With unconditional forgiveness, feelings rather than truth becomes a standard. If a person feels bitterness or resentment, the legitimate response is to forgive. But if we work through forgiveness biblically, that forces us to wrestle with the truth rather than with only our feelings. We may have to talk to someone else about how we feel, and perhaps we will find that we were wrong for being offended in the first place. So it causes us to have these discussions. And then lastly, number seven, unconditional forgiveness does not prepare us as Christians for the persecution and evil that we may face. We're told that as Christians that, that we will suffer persecution. And if we're just to automatically forgive without requiring forgiveness, how, or excuse me, repentance, how, um, how do we interact with those? Are we to automatically forgive those who persecute the church? Well, Revelation 6.10 seems to indicate otherwise. Revelation 6.10, these are the voice of the martyrs, and they say this. They said they cried with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It doesn't sound like someone who automatically forgave because there was no repentance there. The imprecatory prayers like Psalm 5, 10, 109, 139, and several others, those are not prayers of someone who is bitter, but they were leaving room for the wrath of God. That's Romans chapter 12. Go over to the Romans chapter 12. Let me show you this text for a second. Because this is also, you know, answers the question, what about those who are unrepentant? How do we, how do we, how do we respond to those who do not repent of their sins? What, what, is, what is the program? What is the protocol there? Well, Romans chapter 12 answers that. In verse 17, it says, 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we need to understand that what we're saying, we're saying that, that if we're requiring repentance for forgiveness, we're not saying to treat the person badly. We're not saying to, to long for their demise or long for pain or things like that. What we're doing is we're leaving room for the wrath of God, as it says here. So what do we do with the unrepentant? Well, number one, we vow never to take revenge. If someone has sinned against us and they refuse to repent of that sin, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we are not uh, uh, going down the path of revenge because it says very clearly here, never avenge yourselves. That's God's territory. Secondly, we need to leave room for the wrath of God. We need to understand that God will deal with this according to his plan. And again, this is one of the things where I struggle with unconditional forgiveness. If we are just to forgive automatically, how are we leaving room for the wrath of God? Again, I'm not saying that we are, are mean towards people or that we, are, or, or that we uh, uh, are holding things over people's head, but we are willing to forgive. It is ready. The gift of forgiveness is ready there, but we cannot grant it until they repent. And the third thing is that we do is we show the person love and a willingness to forgive upon repentance. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And so we never avenge ourselves, we leave room for the wrath of God, and we show love. That is what we do with the unrepentant. And so back in our Luke 17 text, there's this idea of rebuke. And, and so and it says, if he repents, forgive him. Now last week we didn't talk a lot about rebuke, but it is clear in the text of Luke 17 that we are to confront people if we are offended by their actions. Now the term rebuke carries uh, the connotation of harsh or, or brutal, or, or frankness. Maybe it's, it's a little bit um, uh, brash, if you will. But it is possible to confront someone or rebuke someone in a spirit of love. We can do it kindly and graciously. And so when you see the word rebuke here, don't, don't automatically just read, all right, I gotta get my, my, my boxing gloves on. I gotta I gotta get ready to do the one-two punch on this person, rebuke them and, and show them, you know, hey, they are they, they they are in gross sin. Or to switch metaphors, get the baseball bat out and say, All right, you know, here, here's the holy bat, all right? And you sinned against me and you know, I'm rebuking you. No. We can do it in I mean we saw in Romans twelve. We show love, we show grace, we leave room for the wrath of God. We say, God, you're going to do what you're going to do here. I'm going to show love. So when we rebuke one another, we need to do it with a gracious spirit and a loving spirit and a spirit that says, I'm doing this because I care for you and I care for our relationship. And I'm obeying the commands to live for it is all possible, live peaceably with all. This is all throughout the scriptures. And so we need to be a church that is characterized by peace. So what we've spoken up to this point is that we need to confront someone about their sin and when a relationship has been severed because of their sinful activity or actions. But do we need 
to confront others for every sin against us. Because here's the logical conclusion. It's like, wow, this is going to be exhausting, Jeremy. You know, every time someone does something to me, I've got to go and I've got to rebuke them and try to do it lovingly. And, and I, I, we've got to have this conversation and things. So if, if anyone does anything wrong, do, are you saying, Jeremy, that I need to be the morality police and that I need to be looking at everyone's life and that if I see something that is kind of out of kilter, in my opinion, man, I've got to go to that person. I've got to rebuke them. Is that what we're talking about here? No. Because the Bible does give us another option. And it's at this point I'd ask you to go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As you turn there, let me just bring you up to speed about the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are very doctrinal. They're very deep. They're very heavy. There's a lot of doctrine. Uh, Paul is talking to the Ephesians, and he's given a doctoral treatise. And so then at chapter 4, what he begins to do is he begins to take, based on all the theology that he has taught in the first three chapters, he is then going to start applying that to practical everyday circumstances. Later on, a couple chapters later, he's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about children. He's going to talk about work ethics and things like that. So he's going to go in from doctrine to practicality. Chapter 4 is the pivot point in the book, and that's why it begins with the word therefore, okay? And so he says, based on all this doctrine of who we are in Christ, of what Christ has done for us, he talks about in chapter 1, in Christ you have done this. So he's really building this theological foundation in the first three chapters. Then he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so Paul gives us an important message here. And we see this there, that this is very important because he says, I urge you, in verse 1. This was something that he was saying is of utmost importance. And so as we approach this text, we need to stop and take a look at this and say, okay, why is this so important? Well, I believe it's important because this will help us be a church that's easily edified by peace, that we will have, be a church that gets along with one another. We need to understand here that he is introducing this idea of bearing with one another. It says that in verse 2, with all with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, what Paul is asking you and me to do here in this text is really to imitate God. Romans chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say this. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Basically, what Paul is telling the Romans there is he's saying, listen, don't presume on the nature of God, but God is forbearing, God is kind, God is patient. And this is what Paul is instructing us to do here in Ephesians 4. So sometimes the best way to maintain peace is to simply put up with one another. 
Uh, we used to say at a former church that I served at, we used to say, you know, because uh, some people would come and they say, you know, there's something different about this church. You know, what's, what's the secret here? And, and you know, we, if, if you were to read every manual about how to start a church, you know, we were doing it all wrong. I mean, in so many ways. I mean, so many ways. But God was bringing people, and, and the church was growing. And, and I remember some people, they said, well, well how did, you know, what, what's the secret? And we would often come back to this verse, and we would just say, well, we just simply put up with one another. I mean, there's times we just, just put up with each other. Now, I'm going to say on the, uh, on the beginning here that this is a wisdom call. It's very difficult. When to know to rebuke someone and seek their repentance and, and, and forgiveness, and when to simply bear with somebody and cover the matter and move on. It's a, it's a difficult thing. There's no clear-cut formula in Scripture that I know of, okay? But I do believe that if we can take some practical um, ideas, and at the end I'm going to share some practical questions that we can ask ourselves, but I believe one that we can think of uh, just in the beginning here is, is this affecting my relationship with this person? If my relationship is affected by this person, then I probably need to talk to them. I probably need to have a conversation. But if it's not, if, I, if they've done something or said something, but it's not really affecting me, then maybe I need to bear with it. Now, again, that's general, okay? And, and these are all wisdom calls. But let's look at this. What does it mean to bear with one another and... How do we do that, and why do we do that? Number one, if you're taking notes, is this. We must bear with each other because it is part of our calling. You catch that in verse one, it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And we've been called to something. We've been called to an identity in Jesus Christ. And part of that calling is the idea of bearing with one another in love. We are called to imitate Christ. Can you think of examples where Christ was, he showed forbearance to people? I can. Can you think of, or what about God? Can you think of examples where God has been extremely long-suffering and showing forbearance with people? Of course. My own life, I can think of that. I, I, I've thought of, 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 of sins and, 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 and struggles in my own life that I've struggled with for years. And that God has been very patient with me and, very, uh, and showed a lot of forbearance with me. And it, is it too much for God to ask and say, look, I'm calling you to do what I do with you. So we need to, it's part of our calling to bear with one another. We're called to treat others the way we want to be treated. What's the golden rule of Matthew 7, 12, right? Do unto others as you have them do unto you, right? And so we're called to treat others the way that we want to be treated, and we want people to be long-suffering with us. You know, we, it's funny because we expect people to have really thick skin when we talk to them, but a lot of times we have very thin skin when, when people talk to us. But we are to forbear with one another and understand that maybe there's some other things that are happening in their life. But part of our calling then is not to be the person that every time something happens that we have to go and say, hey, you offended me there. Oh, you offended me there. This is disrupting my peace there. We, can, we need to be easily edified, but we should not be easily offended. We need to make sure that, that 
that we were willing to, to put up with one another and bear with one another. It's part of our calling. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense makes us slow to anger. It's, it's, it's wisdom, it's, it's, um, it's good thinking that says, you know what, I'm not going to get angry quickly about this. And remember, James, I believe it was, said that let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And it's, it's his glory, the glory of a wise man, of a good man, to overlook a matter sometimes. To say, you know what, I'm not going to hold this against that person. I'm not going to let it affect our relationship. So there is a time to simply forbear with one another. There's a time just to put up with one another. Number two, we must bear with each other in order to show love. It says in the uh, it, bearing with one another in love. First Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We need to be a congregation that, that we show love to one another and that love covers a multitude of sins. And sometimes people are going to say something or do something or not talk to you or not respond in the right way or whatever like that. And you know, sometimes love just covers, love just needs to cover a multitude of sins. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll want to pick apart what someone has said and, 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 and parse out what they've said and say, well, no, you must have meant this because you said this. And, and then you talk to the person, and the person says, no, that's not what I meant. You know? Well, no, it is what you meant because you said you wouldn't have said that. If, let, let's not be so persnickety about that. Sometimes we need to hear what the person's trying to say and give them the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes we need to, to look at a person and say, you know what, there's other things going on in this person's life right now. You know, maybe they shouldn't have been so rude to me. I mean, this has implications not just in our church, but even at work and in other places as well and with family. And, and, and you just know that maybe someone makes a bad decision or someone does something wrong, but instead of having to, to always have to confront that person, and there are times to do that. We just spent a whole message last week talking about that and reviewing it today. But, but instead of always having to do that, maybe sometimes the best way to show love to that person is to simply forbear with them. Is that not how God shows love with us? I mean, does God deal with us for every one of our sins? Every time we make a mistake, every time we sin, every time we fall short, do we get an email from God? Do we get a note from God? Do we get a, a, a slap upside the head from God? No. He forbears with us. Is it too much for God to expect us to do that with each other? It amazes me the things that we tend to fight about. And, and I include myself in that as well. You know, my wife and I, we have, we have had... Um, you know, some arguments that in the middle of the argument, you know, she or myself, we're just thinking, this is so stupid. This is so dumb. But I am not going to lose this argument. <laughs> I can't lose a stupid one. <laughs> and so we dig in, right? Or I dig in and, and we have this argument, right? We're refusing just to bear with each other sometimes. I've, I've shared this illustration before, 
But, you know, and I'm going to come back to this probably at the end with, the, with some of these questions, but um, I don't know how long we were married. It took us a few years. We're, we're, we're slow learners. But we, we figured out that we could not have any serious conversations uh, Sunday right after church, okay? Because we, 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 we both realized that, that um, uh, if, if we're hungry, uh, we're, we're not very patient with each other, okay? And, and so I remember a couple times, uh, we had, in, you know, in those early years, and for, you know, several years ago, we, we would fight on Sunday afternoon. It, you know, it seemed like we went through the stretch where every Sunday it was, it was one argument or another. And then, and I don't know if it was probably my wife that, that realized this more than me, but she said, you know what, maybe we shouldn't talk about this until we've eaten, Okay? And so, in, 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 so we started kind of adopting that, 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 that understanding of each other. We just kind of put up with each other. Sometimes she's short with me, or I'm short with her. And um, we kind of think, mm, yeah, we haven't eaten in a while. Okay, so instead of, instead of me, you, you know, coming alongside my wife and saying, you know, no, sweetie, you know, I know you're hungry, but you, you need to be godly now. Okay, all right, all right. Now, the only food you need is the food of the Word of God at this moment, okay? All right, now I want you to pay attention here, all right? Now, now you just need to be sweet and kind and respectful, and I'll do the same, but you know, I mean, you know, I don't care that you're hungry. In fact, we're going to fast now, okay? We're going to fast about this, you know? At that point, I'm an idiot, okay? No, you... You give her some food, okay? Get me some food. Uh, we had a situation one time, and I, I, in, in, we were working on a project. We worked through lunch and all this stuff, and, and she was hungry. I was hungry. We're getting irritated with each other. And so, like, let's go get something to eat. You know, it's probably like 3 o'clock now. We haven't eaten lunch yet. And so um, she's, she's in shutdown mode and, and, and just like, you know, I'm like, what's wrong, sweetie? You know, nothing, nothing. But, you know. So me and my infinite wisdom, there's got to be something wrong, you know. Um, not, I'm just hungry. And then at one point, she's like, just get me something to eat, okay? So pulled into a restaurant, got something to eat, and I watched the evil spirits leave my wife, <laughs> okay? It was like I was waving at them as they were going away, you know, um, Unless you think I'm just picking on her. She's done this to me a lot of times. You know, it's just like, you know, basically open a door, throw a Twinkie and close the door and hope for the best, you know. <laughs> so we bear with one another. Sometimes the greatest way to show love to someone is just to bear with them, right? And say, you know what? We should have us be able to have a civil conversation right now. We shouldn't be so weak that not having food causes us to lose peace and harmony right now. But you know what? We're weak, okay? And we need food, so let's get some food. Then we'll talk later. We just bear with each other. This is one example. But sometimes the best way to show love to someone is simply bear with them. And sometimes that means you've got to know them and what they're going through at that moment. Number three, we must bear with each other to maintain peace. Number three, we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
You see how we need to be easily edified by peace. This should be something that we are constantly pursuing. We should be pursuing peace at all costs in our church. And so if there's an offense, if there's an argument, if there's a disagreement, we should be willing to sit down and talk with one another and work through it if we cannot forbear, if we cannot bear with that person and say, you know what, I'm going to let this one go. Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit the quarrel, or quit before the quarrel breaks out. Strive for peace, because once that argument starts, the, 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 the uh, wisdom writer Solomon there, he said, It's like letting water out. You ever let water out? You can't put it back in. You get a bucket, if I had a bucket of water here and I threw it out this way, I can't just stop midway and go, Oh, and put it back in. It's gone. Same thing like a fight. That's what he's saying. You start letting that water out. There's no bringing it back. So he's saying, stop it before it happens. Bear with one another sometimes. Show love to one another. This is part of your calling. This is how we are to maintain peace. Proverbs 12, 16 says, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Sometimes it's wise just to ignore it when someone says something to you. There's a time for that. There's a time to confront. There's a time to simply bear with that. And how do you know? That's a difficult thing. I get that. I understand, but it's a true wisdom call. The wisdom call of whether we confront or forbear. But let me give you some questions to ask that maybe would help us as we think through this idea of do we forbear or do we confront. But either way, the goal has to be peace. The goal has to be unity. So let, me ask, let me give you some questions to ask yourself. Am I, am I sure that I am right? Am I sure that I am reading this situation correctly? Am I sure that I have heard this person right? Am I sure that this is a sin in this person's life? If not, it may be best to simply to drop the matter. And here's a piece of advice. If you think, well, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, this, this may be a sin in this person's life, so maybe I should, maybe I should deal with this. If you're unsure, if there's, there's, there's kind of this uncertainty there, it may be best still to drop the matter because if it truly is a sin problem in that person's life, you'll see it again. It will come up again. Okay, so if on that first round you're, you're a little uncertain, you're like, eh, maybe it's better to say, you know what, I'm going to forbear with this. But then if you see it again, then it's time to rebuke and, and have the conversation. But ask, am I sure that I'm right? Because sometimes we may have misread the situation. Sometimes we may have misunderstood somebody. I've had that happen before where someone came to me and they said, you know, Jeremy, you offended me in this. And I said, well, I'm I'm sorry. And then we, we start talking about it, and then it was a misunderstanding. Or the other way, or if I was offended by someone, and I say, you know what, we need to talk about this. And they said, well, did you know this? And then it's like, oh, I didn't know. So I wasn't right. So I asked the question, am I sure I'm right about this? Number two, how important is this? How important is this? Not all hills are worth fighting for. If we're going to maintain the spirit, the unity of the spirit, and the bond of peace, there are some things we just need to let go. They're just not important. Not every decision is a crucial decision. If you were to rate your, your, the choices from one to five, five being the most important, not every decision we make or not every situation that we encounter is a five. There's a lot of ones and twos in there. 
And sometimes if, if, if there's an offense between people, not, ever, not everything's a five offense. Some things are just one or two. And sometimes it's best just to let those things go. Um, not every, not, is this really worth it is the question we need to ask yourselves. How important is this? Number three, is this a pattern for this person? Is this something that, I, that I'm consistently seeing going on that I need to talk to this person about? Or is this the first time and I'm, I'm in a huff because I'm offended and they shouldn't talk to me that way and, and you know, who do they think they are? And, and, or is this something that they've, they do? Um, if it's someone that they don't normally talk to you that way or something, maybe you just need to stop and say, you know what, maybe you need to talk to them about it. That's definitely an option. Or maybe it's best sometimes to say, boy, that is not like that. Man, you know, must be having a bad day. I'm just going to show love, and I'm not going to go after this person. These are wisdom calls. I get this, okay? And there's some ambiguity here I recognize. But these are things that we should be thinking about. Then the last question we can ask yourself, I think is very helpful, is what else is going on in this person's life? This is an application of Proverbs 19.11 where it says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it says, glory to overlook a matter. Good sense. This is the application here. Sometimes I think we just need to ask ourselves, what else is happening in this person's life? You know, if they're going through a, 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 a really difficult circumstance at work or something, that's going to affect other things. And should it? No. Should, should they still treat you with respect? And should they still be kind and gracious? Absolutely. No one's excusing that. But I'm saying on our end, sometimes it's best to say, you know what? I know what else is going on. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be a little bit more gracious toward them. I think I shared this before uh, with you. But... Um, I've spent about 15 years working with teenagers. And for a lot of people, teenagers are um, intimidating because teens are really good at just kind of giving you, giving you death looks, you know. And, and, and I'm looking at some of them right now. Got the death look going on. So, all right. And so, uh, um, you know, it's really good, you know. And I like that, you know. They... they, they they're confident, they're figuring things out, you know, so got their own opinions about everything, and I got opinions about everything, so it works great. But you know, I found that a lot of times when working with teens, that there's, there's, there's stuff going on in their lives that I mean, they don't know how to deal with, and they're trying to figure it out. And it's affecting how they treat authority or how they treat their friends or other people. And I found that the more we get to know people, the more we, we show love to that person and say, what else is going on in your life? It's a lot easier to bear with one another. But when we, refused, when we refuse to get to know each other, when we're comfortable and satisfied with me living over here, you living over there, I'll do my thing, you do your thing, we'll come together once a week, but then we'll go back, that's when it's hard to bear with one another. Because the only interaction we have is this, and you didn't respond the way you should have responded, so it's offensive to me. But the more we get to know someone, the easier it is to bear with them. Let's go back to my illustration. My wife and I, and we've learned to forbear with each other. Why? Because she's, she's gotten to know me that 
I can't handle harsh criticism if I haven't eaten yet, okay? And so she's learned that about me. Um, And I've learned things about her. The more we know about a person, the easier it is to show love, grace, and forbearance. And so what else is going on in this person's life? It's a really good question to ask. So as we go throughout this week, what are we to do? If we're going to be a church that is easily edified by peace, then we must be slow to take offense. So let me encourage us. Let us be a church that's slow to take offense. But if offenses do happen, and they will, we must lovingly seek repentance while having forgiveness ready to be granted. Think of the implications this has for your workplace or your marriage. The relationship with your coworkers and supervisors and children and, and parents, and the list goes on and on. Be slow to take offense, be quick to repent, and be ready to forgive. This is the example that Jesus has for us. Jesus, he bears with us. Jesus is quick to, re- to, to, uh, to forgive. And so let us follow the example of Jesus. And by God's grace, let's be a church that's easily edified by peace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I do pray that we would be a church that's easily edified by peace. I pray that we would long for peace and that we would work hard for peace and that we would bear with one another and that when time comes for us to confront, that we would do it in a spirit of love and grace and that if we are the person being confronted, that you would give us humility and graciousness and that we would be able to have relationships restored and reconciled. Father, working through these, these, these steps of biblical forgiveness that causes us to have stronger relationships with each other. Instead of just automatically forgiving and not talking to the person and not dealing with that person, and yet we're truly offended by them, that relationship becomes very weak. But if we work through what you have outlined for us, our relationships become very strong. So, Father, please, I pray that we would, that we would be a people, a church that pursues peace because this would bring glory and honor to your name. It's in Christ's name I do pray. Amen.